Hi, I'm James Bray. And I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. If you look at the history of human storytelling, from the earliest myth through the great religions and all the way to Marvel movies, it seems pretty clear that humans have a deep-seated fantasy and taboo about breaking their natural limits. This manifests in many forms. A gift from the gods, a pact with the devil, a genetic mutation, an indestructible metal suit. We have literally thousands of stories that riff on the superhuman, both its dark side and its good. Super strength, super knowledge, immortality. We love it. But today, things that once could safely be treated as fantasy are beginning to look kind of plausible. Right, I'm not saying X-Men are just around the corner, but bulletproof exoskeletons, computer brain interfaces, gene editing, these technologies are here. And guess what? They are moving fast. Right. The list of stuff we can already do is starting to feel like science fiction even now. Synthetic blood, brain implants that boost your cognitive functions, mind-controlled bionic devices, and a suit that lets you turn invisible. Um... Okay, I made that one up. But my point is, things are moving fast. And at the risk of cliché, this is just the beginning. The way things are going, it's pretty clear that the Fourth Industrial Revolution will see humanity develop the means to break a lot of limits and a lot of taboos when it comes to enhancing what we think of as our natural capacities. Maybe we can have super strength, super intelligence. Depending on who you ask, even immortality could be on the table. From our interviews this time, here's just a smattering of the possibilities. Things like uh, being able to uh, have technologies that radically extend the human lifespan, being able to prosthetically augment the body, genetically modify the body, more controversially control the conditions under which you reproduce, so uh, control the genomic characteristics of your children, being able to control your own cognition, augment your brain, augment your memory, control mood. Could humans have whisker sensing or could we have um, infrared visibility kind of cape? Could you change our vision to have IR uh, instead of just the traditional spectrum of light that we could see? Some of those things are possible and there have been ways either through using virtual reality to enable people to experience new senses like the ability to fly or like whisker sensing or other types of things. Some people would say direct ways to induce sleep by being able to physically change your brain through you know, transcranial direct current stimulation or through transcranial direct currents, you know, quieting of parts of your brain. Implants that go into the into the depth of your brain, like, such as the such as the brain stem or the basal ganglia where we can find them, and you can basically control arousal, you can uh, control stress levels electrically by stimulating these brain areas. And you can think about, to some extent, maybe also in some future time that you're interfacing with your memory capacity or your memory areas and supply either direct memories or, or allow weak memories to bubble up by basically injecting the right form of stimulus so to help you in memory capacity tasks or interfacing robotic or novel sensory technology by directly implanting chips into your sensory or motor areas of your brain. Sounds awesome, right? What could possibly go wrong? In many ways, I'm a critic of 
human enhancement. And I'm a critic both uh, of the project uh, in terms of its ethics, but I'm also a, uh, a critic of boosterism. Think about uh, the amphetamines that fighter pilots take. Think about drugs to reduce the need for sleep that have been suggested as being valuable in surgery. You don't want your surgeon to be tired when they're doing a long surgery, but it's not clear you also want them to be speeding off their head uh, either. One of the things I think that people don't consider enough when they're talking about human enhancement is the possibility that improvement in the technologies that produce enhancement might have some unanticipated consequences. Rob Sparrow is an ethicist at Monash University in Melbourne. He's done some hard thinking on humanity's behalf about what the future looks like if some of the dreams of human enhancement are realised. And it turns out there are quite a lot of things that could go wrong. It seems like now is a good time for the rest of us to start answering some questions about that collective fantasy of ours. What do we really want people to be able to do to themselves to go beyond normal human limits? And who gets to do it? It's important to say at the outset that nearly... All the technologies we're talking about have many applications that are nothing to do with enhancement. We're talking about the power to restore lost senses and limbs, heal terrible injuries, and cure many forms of physical and mental disease. So far, so good. Not many people would argue with any of that. Where things start to get more ethically interesting is when you're talking about taking people who are well and enhancing them. As ever with the Fourth Industrial Revolution, it's complicated. This debate has a lot of layers, and we can't hit them all in this podcast. Each technology has its own specific objections, and the nature of the objections varies too. Well, they they come in basically two flavors. One is objections based on the notion that uh, there's this God-given limit on on human capacities, and that if you go beyond that, you are committing hubris of some kind. And there are secular versions of that that make reference to the natural or to uh, human dignity or other kinds of quasi-spiritual terms. Um, It's hard to take those seriously. We're just basically talking different languages. They're making reference to ontologies that most secular transhumanists and even us religious transhumanists don't uh, don't recognize. James Hughes is a card-carrying techno-progressive transhumanist. And before we go any further, we'd better let him tell you what that means. Transhumanism is a pretty minimal set of uh, commit value commitments. It's basically that you believe that there will be technologies or there are technologies that allow human beings to transcend the limitations of the body and the brain and that people should generally have a right to use them and on the grounds that you should have a right to control your own body and brain. That doesn't tell you very much about everything else that they believe. They could be religious or secular or left-wing or right-wing. But uh, insofar as there's minimal definition of transhumanism, I am one. Techno-progressives are folks who take seriously the importance of political questions that are uh, posed by emerging technologies, questions that many people would consider to be science fiction or not imminent enough to uh, warrant giving much attention to. But also, we have generally a progressive political orientation. So the futurist world uh, has many different uh, political flavors, uh, as does everything. And um, some of those uh, folks who would advocate for 
the importance of the technologies that we talk about would be libertarians or uh, apolitical. And we think that the equity questions, regulatory questions, uh, democratic questions that are posed by emerging technologies have to be taken very seriously. And, and so we're engaged with the left in trying to get them to take these things seriously and with the policy and academic world, but also with futurists to try to take seriously the progressive political questions. A far cry from the caricature of the cavalier futurist, James has devoted considerable thought to the ethical challenges that human enhancement technologies throw up. As he says, there's one set that's broadly spiritual in nature. It's the logic underpinning such tragedies as Icarus, Frankenstein or Faustus, that there is a natural order to the universe and for man to reach beyond that order is somehow bound to end in tears. Or, in Frankenstein's case, in the death of all you hold dear and your own extinction by pneumonia. This is a kind of thinking that, to a certain type of mind, is, to put it mildly, a touch dramatic. After all... We've been co-evolving with fire and furs and shoes and all kinds of technology for a very long time. And the notion that you draw a sharp line and say, this is ur-human, you know, 1950s human is ur-human and everything after that is this dangerous post-human or uh, adv- enhancement technology, that's problematic and ahistorical. So humans have been making use of technology to enhance their capabilities for thousands of years. Enhancement is just part of this continuum. Except that, in a way, the whole point of the Fourth Industrial Revolution as a paradigm is that what we are living through is not just part of a continuum. It is a radical acceleration, a paradigm shift. The clues in the name. I think that the risk and the concern that people have is whether or not some of these enhancements are different in kind rather than degree. So if it's just part of the same, if it's just part of the continuum of human enhancement that we've done for you know, millennia, uh, then maybe there's not that much cause for concern. But if it can rapidly change the capabilities of human beings such that they have capabilities that either humans have never had before or capacities for intelligence or for advancement that we've never had before, then it creates new ethical problems that are more punctuated because of the drastic nature of the enhancement. That's Nita Farahani, a leading scholar on the implications of biosciences and emerging technologies. We'll be hearing more from her in this series. As we discovered, some advances remain more acceptable than others. And frustrating as they may be to some, it doesn't look like the world is really ready to abandon its taboos just yet. Here's Aldo Faisal, a neuroscientist and engineer working on brain-controlled prosthetics. Something, what we know from robotics, that we call the uncanny valley. So in, in, in robotics, if a robot looks too human, but it's not exactly human, it, it feels eerie, it feels alienating. And so this was one of the big findings of the 70s and the 80s, when people started to build humanoid-looking robots, that people were not comfortable with that. And so they were more, you know, reduced in their human-like looks to looks, let's say, you know, more, more cartoon-like. And, and that made it acceptable again. And that's the tension that we can come up with great-sounding and great technologies that are in themselves great, but once you're talking about making something you or part of you, there are different things that are coming into play. And all of a sudden, we shouldn't just talk to engineers. We need to talk to cognitive scientists. We need to talk to psychologists, maybe even some philosophers, to better understand what makes us want to integrate or embody these technologies. Similarly, I think we may have an uncanny valley in in the level of, of human augmentation 
that we've not really started to explore and probe yet. The problem is that the line separating progress from hubris is pretty hard to make out. Different people clearly draw it in different places. I think that human augmentation is really limited by the decision whether you want to be invasive, so you need to modify your body, you need to undergo surgery or not, or whether you want to have technology that you can just pop, and, pop on, pop off like a pair of glasses. And personally, I believe in the second approach, literally that's what we're working on, vision-based approaches where we monitor eye movements of people by making them wear simple spectacles that allow us to predict their intentions and, and, and basically use that to drive robotic technology. So I very much believe that the future technology should be completely reversible so that people can just be free of the technology. They, we don't want really symbiosis that is on a permanent basis. I think that will make this technology not just ethically less complicated, it will make it also more acceptable. So outside of the species range, uh, uh, and depending upon how you define enhancement there, that changes the way we think about uh, the ethics. Uh, the more you think of just taking someone who's perhaps got a life expectancy of 60 and extending it to 75, which is roughly speaking a normal life expectancy for a man uh, where I live, uh, then that will just look like ordinary medicine and it'll be hard to object to. But if you're imagining giving someone a life expectancy of 200 years, then that starts to look as though it might generate significant ethical issues. The other main distinction in this uh, debate is the difference between uh, enhancing existing individuals, uh, typically adults, where you might think that you can ask someone, do you want to be enhanced? And they say yes, and then that settles many of the ethical questions. And enhancing future individuals through a technology like genome editing or perhaps, you know, plugging our young children into, into sort of computers to turn them into cyborgs at the age of two, where it doesn't look as though you could actually say they gave uh, permission. So there's enhancing existing individuals and there's enhancing future individuals and the ethical issues uh, tend to go differently uh, between those uh, cases. Then there's debates about uh, particular technologies of enhancement. So there's a debate about pharmaceutical enhancement. There's a debate about enhancing ourselves by merging with machines, you know, developing perhaps cochlear implants that allow you to hear uh, in... Um, frequencies or, uh, you know, or to hear radio waves, that, that's a plausible uh, enhancement of human hearing. And then there's also genetic human enhancement. And in some ways, genetic human enhancement of future individuals is the most controversial form of enhancement. It might sound far out, but in transhumanist circles, those kinds of ideas, moving beyond species norms, are familiar terrain. And there are scenarios where radical human enhancement might be a question of survival. No need to go to Hollywood for this either. Here's Lord Martin Rees, the United Kingdom's Astronomer Royal. He also founded the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, where he contemplates extinction-level threats to humanity. If you think of what's going to be an exciting development for uh, humanity, it will be um, these pioneers who choose to explore beyond the Earth, accepting very high risks, and uh, we will cheer them on. Most of us won't want to go, but it's good that some people do. And uh, they will go in the spirit of the uh, 
16th and 17th century explorers who explored remote parts of the earth. In a sense, they're not going into the unknown nearly as much as those were, because Magellan had no idea what he'd find in the Southern Hemisphere, whereas uh, anyone who goes to Mars will know pretty exactly what it's like there before they go, and of course won't be cut off from communications in the way that Magellan was. The kind of people who will go will be more like uh, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, who dragged a sledge across the Antarctic in winter, or Mr. Baumgartner, who fell supersonically from a high-altitude balloon. People like that, thrill-seekers and risk-takers. And they'd be happy to go even when the risk is high, and therefore they can go in a cut-price style. And that's the way I think the first people will get to Mars. Although most of us would want to stay comfortably on Earth, I think for the future of uh, humanity and life, those people on Mars will play a very important role because... By the end of a century, we will have hugely advanced technology for cyborg, AI, and gene modification. Those techniques will be regulated here on Earth. But these people on Mars will be beyond the reach of any terrestrial regulator, and they'll have every incentive to modify themselves to adapt to an environment that's very hostile to humans, not the right atmosphere, etc., and so they will modify themselves. They may even uh, download their brains into robots, if that could be done there, and become electronic. And then they might prefer zero G and will go off into space. So the post-human era will start within a few centuries, led by these crazy pioneers on Mars. So they'll be important for the future of uh, intelligence in the cosmos, even though they might uh, not affect us here on Earth. Of course, the prospect of imminent human extinction would probably change our ethical calculus on some of these questions. And anyway, we're in fairly speculative terrain here. Perhaps the fourth industrial revolution really will be a step towards a post-human future. Or perhaps this is just an updated version of the deepest fantasy of all. Megan O'Geeblin is a writer who left the Christian faith behind only to find herself embracing the promise of transhumanism for a while. For her, the parallels are obvious. And there is sort of this idea that, you know, the current human form is somehow insufficient, you know, or that it's broken somehow, you know. And, and for me, as a, somebody who grew up as a Christian, I see a lot of resonance there between the Christian idea of sort of fallen human nature and this idea that the, the human, you know, the, the transhumanist idea that the, the body is basically this insufficient machine that can be bettered through technology. You could find people have drawn resonances between transhumanism and Buddhism also because there's this emphasis on the desire to end suffering. There's, there's a lot of, I think, resonances to different faith traditions that are, you can find within the movement. I think what drew me to the, to transhumanism, although I didn't realize it at the time, was that it believed in a, a vision of the future that was almost identical to the one that was familiar to me from Christianity, you know, just as Christians believe everything is moving, you know, toward this final point of glorification. Uh, you know, Kurzweil goes back to the Stone Age and talks about how all history and all human endeavor has been leading toward the singularity, which is the point where humans will basically evolve into another species through technological enhancement and become post-human. Obviously, there's a lot of resonances there between the two ideologies, and I think that's that's what drew me to it. And I think that that's sort of also what appeals to a lot of people in the West about these ideas. You know, I think all of us are to some degree familiar with, uh, you know, the Christian redemptive narrative and that there's something familiar 
about these ideas. In the meantime, perhaps the strongest set of objections to human enhancement come in the realm of good old-fashioned debates about equality. There are obvious social justice issues depending upon how accessible these technologies uh, are. Uh, there's dangers about entrenching uh, wealth because some people have access to them, uh, enhance their performance, succeed in a competitive society and their children have access to more performance. I think Michael Sandel's arguments about uh, undermining human solidarity uh, by generating new forms of profound inequality are also uh, quite powerful objections and not based in a religious philosophy. So this is the concern uh, that, um, say, if, uh, you know, support for the welfare state uh, was originally uh, gathered and politically plausible because people knew that problems that started amongst the poor would affect the wealthy. So something like tuberculosis, which is a disease that is uh, more likely to be transmitted in poverty, also affects the wealthy, uh, as do epidemics more generally. But if you end up with a class of people with enhanced immune systems who aren't vulnerable to disease, uh, why are they going to care about providing public health? Uh, so there's, you know, potential dangers in the way people relate to each other when some are enhanced and some aren't that I think are, uh, are serious concerns with the enhancement project and not founded in religious objections. The questions, I think, for techno-progressives are pretty much continuous with the questions around healthcare access and healthcare equity today. Uh, there are enormous disparities between and across and within countries uh, based on uh, wealth and access to healthcare technology that already determine uh, how long people live and the kinds of abilities they have. Uh, you know, if we take the example of life extension, there's already a difference in life expectancy in the United States between people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and races. There's an enormous difference in life expectancy between countries based on uh, wealth and access to technology. And those are insupportable inequalities. And we need to be working today to ensure universal health care access and the improvement of living conditions and education across the world and within, within every country to make sure that those inequities are addressed. When we begin to unroll various kinds of longevity therapies, they might be things like a gene uh, tweak uh, delivered as a kind of genetic vaccine, which could uh, modify the aging mechanisms in the body, slow down the aging process. If those are incredibly expensive, then we have questions about you know, whether they should only be available to certain people or not available until they're more universally accessible. We don't currently ban in most countries the market access to expensive healthcare technologies. We generally say if it's, you know, if it's not a, a charlatan selling this stuff and it's relatively safe and effective and we can't cover it through the National Health Service or through universal healthcare then it will be available in the market and we'll try to reverse engineer it so that it can be accessible to everyone. There may be things like that in the future, uh, stem cell therapies, certain kinds of prosthetic limbs and so forth. Ah, oh, longevity therapies. If there is one supreme disappointment about the human body, it's surely its mortality. Can we enhance that away? Could we finally, through sheer human ingenuity, achieve the life everlasting? 
Actually, there are plenty of people who think we could by a surprising variety of means. Huge amounts of money are being poured into possible solutions to the issue of death. Perhaps the solution will be a form of reanimation, or perhaps a pharmaceutical or genetic approach that can stop aging. Or perhaps, as was very popularly conceived in the Black Mirror San Junipero episode, the answer is to upload our brains. Just don't hold your breath. So I think it's I think it's very appealing to think about brain uploading, but I think the question that the brain upload comes to is ultimately what makes us us, and it's a very philosophical question. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea I think in the brain upload is that we can sort of hope to try to record the activity of every single brain cell, uh, and th- the amazing thing is that we've seen really an exponential growth in the number of brain cells we can simultaneously record from uh, in, in from uh, from neuroscience experiments. But at the current growth rate, which has been the same, roughly doubling every seven years uh, with a doubling of recording capacity, it will take us till roughly 2250 before we have a device that can record all the brain cells at the same time. So, you know, maybe for our great-great-grandchildren, this is something of interest. But I think till then, the question is, what is it really that we want to upload? Is it our personality pattern? Is it how we're responding to certain situations? Do we just want to leave an avatar for our um, I don't know, children and grandchildren that they can interact with after we're gone? Again, we may be drifting into the zone of the speculative and futuristic, or perhaps just the timeless. After all, aren't we basically talking about the promise of eternal life? Throughout history, especially in the Christian tradition in the West, there have been people who have basically believed that the prophecies of the Bible, so things like, you know, the promise of eternal life, uh, the resurrection of the dead, the, you know, glorification of the body, that these things could be achieved through science and technology. So going back to, you know, some of the first Western scientists, alchemists were actually working in Benedictine and Franciscan monasteries, and they were inspired by these biblical prophecies to try to find an elixir of life that would basically like a potion that would make, you know, the flesh incorruptible. And, you know, even after the Enlightenment, you have different groups that, you know, sort of saw these, I think, resonances between, you know, these ancient mythical promises and, um, you know, the, the objectives of science. So I talk about, you know, the Russian cosmos in the 19th century is this movement that basically believed that the, the dead could be resurrected through science and technology and that humans should be actively trying to bring about those prophecies through through science materially. And then even, you know, the, the French Jesuit priest, Teher de Chardin, also believed that, you know, the resurrection could be achieved through technology. And so there's been people throughout history who've sort of been writing about, I guess, the desire for transcendence or sort of human enhancement through the lens of both a spiritual and a technological perspective. Like a lot of transhumanists, they believe they're the ones that are going to actually finally achieve that objective, which I think is kind of hubristic. But um, I, I do think, you know, the desire for immortality is probably something that's endemic to human nature. You know, and, and I grew up in Christianity, and, and Christians often point to that longing as, as proof that there is actually this other reality beyond this one, or that we're, you know, humans are sort of built for eternity. As long as we've had language, perhaps we've been able to ask questions like, wouldn't it be better if? And I think as soon as people started to do that, they also started to hypothesize 
about um, why there are bad things in the world and what might happen before birth and after death, all the different kinds of religious questions. And the idea of religion itself as a category is very modern and, and recent. So all the ideas that people had, uh, our ancestors had about um, how to make things better, what, what would be a better kind of life? What, how, what would a life be like without hunger and disease and warfare and a body that didn't suffer all the time um, and people, everybody would be wise? A lot of those things took place within the context of what we would now call religion or myth or culture. And so, yeah, there's this, this is an ancient endeavor to be to trying to imagine how we could achieve these kinds of things. And we came up with technologies like herbs and prayer and meditation and propitiation of gods and, and all kinds of technologies. Those technologies didn't work very well. With the advent of the scientific method and the Enlightenment, people had the same aspirations, but they just started to say, hey, maybe we could achieve these things through medicine and, uh, and other kinds of technologies. And that's basically transhumanism. That's the, the question. Wouldn't it be great if everyone could get rid of disease and death and work and slavery uh, through various kinds of advances in our reason and science and technology? Wouldn't it? The answer rather depends on how you go about it, of course. For some, the language of enhancement contains a dangerous premise. So my worry is that philosophical interest in enhancement, its real-world political impact, is actually to license people to start talking about um, some people being genetically unfit, some people being genetically superior. Um, so my, my criticisms have mainly been about the way in which this literature and this debate plays out in the public sphere when really we can't. We can't enhance people in any meaningful sense using any of the technologies that people are speculating about. Uh, but what we can do is reinvigorate old social Darwinist ideas uh, that uh, took us to very dangerous places in the past. It is worth remembering that, you know, the argument that the, the poor, the brown-skinned, uh, the homosexual should all be prevented from reproducing, that was an argument that was made in esteemed universities by learned professors, by, uh, by, uh, it was made in the Houses of Parliament, it was made by, uh, made by lawyers. Um, so we can't assume that just because, you know, <laughs> we're nice and we're bright, that those arguments are beyond us and we can't uh, avoid the responsibility to pay attention to those historical uh, resonances and worry about how these arguments are going to be received. It is easy to argue that such a stand is alarmist, and certainly no proponents of enhancement we have spoken to are interested in reinvigorating eugenics programs. But it doesn't take a huge cognitive leap to see how that kind of thinking can emerge from the language of enhancement. If humanity is to realize the promise that these technologies have to offer, which is vast, it will have to tread carefully along the way. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Ingtov Larsen. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode, where we will look at one of the biggest news stories of the Fourth Industrial Revolution so far, technological unemployment. What is the future of work as we outsource more and more to machines? And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact 
all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon.